Welcome to this reading of the Westminster Catechisms, produced by Stillwater's Revival Books, website www.swrb.com, and read by W.J. Mancaro. The larger catechism agreed upon by the Assemblies of Divines at Westminster, with the assistance of commissioners from the Church of Scotland, as a part of the covenanted uniformity in religion betwixt the churches of Christ and the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, and approved Anno 1648 by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland to be a directory for catechizing such as have made some proficiency in the knowledge of the grounds of religion. Assembly at Edinburgh, July 2, 1648, Session 10, Act Approving the Larger Catechism. The General Assembly, having exactly examined and seriously considered the larger catechism agreed upon by the Assemblies of Divines sitting at Westminster, with assistance of commissioners from this Kirk, copies thereof being printed and sent to presbyteries for the more exact trial thereof, and public intimation being frequently made in this assembly that everyone that had any doubts or objections upon it might put them in, do find, upon due examination thereof, that the said catechism is agreeable to the word of God, and in nothing contrary to the received doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of this kirk, a necessary part of the intended uniformity in religion, and a rich treasure for increasing knowledge among the people of God. And therefore the assembly, as they bless the Lord that so excellent a catechism is prepared, so they approve the same as a part of uniformity, agreeing, for their part, that it be a common catechism for the three kingdoms, and a directory for catechizing such as have made some proficiency in the knowledge of the grounds of religion. The larger catechism, question one. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. Question two. How doth it appear that there is a God? Answer. The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But His word and spirit do only sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Question 3. What is the word of God? Answer. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. Question 4. How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the word of God? Answer. The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God, by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. Question 5. What do the Scriptures principally teach? Answer. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question 6. What do the Scriptures make known of God? Answer. 
the scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. Question 7. What is God? Answer. God is a spirit, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Question 8. Are there more gods than one? Answer. There is but one only, the living and true God. Question 9. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer. There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power, and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Question 10. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? Answer. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Question 11. How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Answer. The Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Question 12. What are the decrees of God? Answer. God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath, for his own glory, unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Question 13. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? Answer. God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious grace, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life and the means thereof. And also, according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. Question 14. How doth God execute his decrees? Answer. God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. Question 15. What is the work of creation? Answer. The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, 
make of nothing the world, and of all and all things therein for himself, within the space of six days, and all very good. Question 16. How did God create angels? Answer. God created all the angels' spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute his commandments and to praise his name, yet subject to change. Question 17. How did God create man? Answer. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground, and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. Question 18. What are God's works of providence? Answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Question 19. What is God's providence toward the angels? Answer. God, by his providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrecoverably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory, and established the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all at his pleasure in the administrations of his power, mercy, and justice. Question 20. What was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? Answer. The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Question 21. Did man continue in that estate wherein God at first created him? Answer. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit, and thereby fell from the estate of innocency wherein they were created. Question 22. Did all mankind fall in that first transgression? Answer. The covenant being made with Adam as a public person not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Question 23. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Answer. 
the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Question 24. What is sin? Answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Question 25. Wherein consisteth the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? Answer. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which to proceed all actual transgressions. Question 26. How is original sin conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity? Answer. Original sin is conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity by natural generation, so as all that proceed from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. Question 27. What misery did the fall bring upon mankind? Answer. The fall brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God, his displeasure and curse, so as we are by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. Question 28. What are the punishments of sin in this world? Answer. The punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward, as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes, and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. Question 29. What are the punishments of sin in the world to come? Answer. The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. Question 30. Doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer. God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it, and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. Question 31. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Answer. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. Question 32. How is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? Answer. 
Answer. So God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him, promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Question 33. Was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? Answer. The covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administrations of it under the Old Testament were different from those under the New. Question 34. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? Answer. The covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all foresignify Christ then to come, and were, for that time, sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. Question 35. How is the covenant of grace administered under the New Testament? Answer. Under the New Testament, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the same covenant of grace was, and still is, to be administered in the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all nations. Question 36. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Answer. The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. Question 37. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. Question 38. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Answer. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Answer. 
It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoptions of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Question 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Answer. It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Question 41. Why was our mediator called Jesus? Answer. Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. Question 42. Why was our mediator called Christ? Answer. Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure, and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate both of his humiliation and exaltation. Question 43. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word, in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Question 44. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God, to be a reconciliation for the sins of his people, and in making continual intercession for them. Question 45. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Question 46. What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? Answer. The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. Question 47. How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Answer. Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that, being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement.
Question 48. How did Christ humble himself in this life? Answer. Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that his low condition. Question 49. How did Christ humble himself in his death? Answer. Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He laid down his life an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Question 50. Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Answer. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. Question 51. What was the estate of Christ's exaltation? Answer. The estate of Christ's exaltation comprehendeth his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. Question 52. How was Christ exalted in his resurrection? Answer. Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that, not having seen corruption in death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, and having the very same body in which he suffered, with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power, whereby he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice, to have vanquished death, and him that had the power of it, and to be Lord of quick and dead, all which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. Question 53. How was Christ exalted in his ascension? Answer. Christ was exalted in his ascension in that having after his resurrection often appeared unto and conversed with his apostles, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he, in our nature and as our head, triumphing over enemies, visibly went up into the highest heavens, there to receive gifts for men, to raise up our affections thither, and to prepare a place for us where himself is, and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. Question 54. How is Christ exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God? Answer. Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God, in that as God-man he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, 
with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and doth gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and maketh intercession for them. Question 55. How doth Christ make intercession? Answer. Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven, in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, and acceptance of their persons and services. Question 56. How is Christ to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world? Answer. Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world, in that he, who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men, shall come again at the last day in great power, and in the full manifestation of his own glory, and of his Father's, with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, to judge the world in righteousness. Question 57. What benefits hath Christ procured by his mediation? Answer. Christ, by his mediation, hath procured redemption with all other benefits of the covenant of grace. Question 58. How do we come to be made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured? Answer. We are made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured by the application of them unto us, which is the work especially of God the Holy Ghost. Question 59. Who are made partakers of redemption through Christ? Answer. Redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those for whom Christ hath purchased it, who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. Question 60. Can they who have never heard the gospel, and so know not Jesus Christ, nor believe in him, be saved by their living according to the light of nature? Answer. They who, having never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ, and believe not in him, cannot be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, or the laws of that religion which they profess. Neither is their salvation in any other, but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the Church. Question 61. Are all they saved who hear the gospel and live in the church? Answer. All that hear the gospel and live in the visible church are not saved, but they only who are true members of the church invisible. Question 62. What is the visible church? Answer. The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. Question 63. What are the special privileges of the visible church? Answer. The visible church hath the privilege of being under God's special care and government, 
of being protected and preserved in all ages, notwithstanding the opposition of all enemies, and of enjoying the communion of saints, the ordinary means of salvation, and offers of grace by Christ to all the members of it in the ministry of the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes in him shall be saved, and excluding none that will come unto him. Question 64. What is the invisible church? Answer. The invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. Question 65. What special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? Answer. The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. Question 66. What is that union which the elect have with Christ? Answer. The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Question 67. What is effectual calling? Answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby, out of his free and special love to his elect, and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he doeth, in his accepted time, invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. Question 68. Are the elect only effectually called? Answer. All the elect, and they only, are effectually called, although others may be, and often are, outwardly called by the ministry of the Word and have some common operations of the Spirit, who for their willful neglect and contempt of the grace offered to them, being justly left in their unbelief, do never truly come to Jesus Christ. Question 69. What is the communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? Answer. The communion and grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Question 70. What is justification? Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Question 71. How is justification an act of God's free grace? Answer. Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepteth the satisfaction from a surety which he might have demanded of them, and did provide this surety, his own only Son, 
imputing his righteousness to them, and requiring nothing of them for their justification but faith, which also is his gift, their justification is to them of free grace. Question 72. What is justifying faith? Answer. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery, and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth, for pardon of sin, and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Question 73. How doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Answer. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness. Question 74. What is adoption? Answer. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his Son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Question 75. What is sanctification? Answer. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them renewed in their whole man after the image of God having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces so stirred up increased and strengthened as that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life Question 76. What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Question 77. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Answer. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. 
In sanctification his spirit infuseth grace, and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former sin is pardoned, in the other it is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. Question 78. Whence ariseth the imperfection of sanctification in believers? Answer. The imperfection of sanctification in believers ariseth from the remnants of sin abiding in every part of them, and the perpetual lustings of the flesh against the spirit, whereby they are often foiled with temptations and fall into many sins, are hindered in all their spiritual services, and their best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. Question 79. May not true believers, by reason of their imperfections, and the many temptations and sins they are, they are overtaken with, fall away from the state of grace? Answer. True believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God, and His decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, His continual intercession for them, and the Spirit and seed of God abiding in them can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Question 80. Can true believers be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and that they shall persevere thereon unto salvation? Answer. Such as truly believe in Christ and endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him may, without extraordinary revelation, by faith grounded upon the truth of God's promises and by the Spirit enabling them to discern in themselves those graces to which the promises of life are made and bearing witness with their spirits that they are the children of God, be infallibly assured that they are in the estate of grace and shall persevere therein unto salvation. Question 81. Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in the estate of grace, and that they shall be saved? Answer. Assurance of grace and salvation not being of the essence of faith, true believers may wait long before they obtain it and, after the enjoyment thereof, may have it weakened and intermitted through manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet are they never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. Question 82. What is the communion and glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? Answer. The communion and glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is in this life, immediately after death, and at last perfected at the resurrection and day of judgment. Question 83. What is the communion and glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life? Answer. 
The members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ, as they are members of him their head, and so in him are interested in that glory which he is fully possessed of, and, as an earnest thereof, enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory, as, on the contrary, sense of God's revenging wrath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments which they shall endure after death. Question 84. Shall all men die? Answer. Death being threatened as the wages of sin, it is appointed unto all men once to die, for that all have sinned. Question 84. Death being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death, seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ? Answer. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that, although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery, and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. Question 86. What is the communion in glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? Answer. The communion in glory with Christ which the members of the individual church enjoy immediately after death is in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies which even in death continue not united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they begin uh, they be again united to their souls whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons till the resurrection and judgment of the great day question 87 what are we to believe concerning the resurrection answer we are to believe that at the last day there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust, when they that are then found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up by the power of Christ. The bodies of the just, by the Spirit of Christ, and by virtue of his resurrection as their head, shall be raised in power, spiritual, incorruptible, and made like to his glorious body, and the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. Question 88. What shall immediately follow after the resurrection? Answer. Immediately after the resurrection shall follow the general and final judgment of angels and men, the day and hour whereof no man knoweth, that all may watch and pray and be ever ready for the coming of the Lord. Question 89. What shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment? Answer. At the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell, to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. 
Question 90. What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? Answer. At the day of judgment, the righteous, being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. Having seen what the scriptures principally teach us to believe concerning God, it follows to consider what they require as the duty of man. Question 91. What is the duty which God requireth of man? Answer. The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Question 92. What did God at first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? Answer. The rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. Question 93. What is the moral law? Answer. The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Question 94. Is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Answer. Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, yet there is great use thereof, as well common to all men, as peculiar either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. Question 95. Of what use is the moral law to all men? Answer. The moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. To convince them, of their disability to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. Question 96. What particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men? Answer. The moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences to flee from wrath to come and to drive them to Christ, or, upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin, to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. Question 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Answer. Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet, besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it, and enduring the curse thereof in their stead, and for their good, 
and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Question 98. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Answer. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, which were delivered by the voice of God upon Mount Sinai, and written by him in two tables of stone, and are recorded in the twentieth chapter of Exodus. The four first commandments containing our duty to God, and the other six our duty to man. Question 99. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Answer. For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. 1. That the law is perfect, and bindeth everyone to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof, and unto entire obedience forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty, and to forbid the least degree of every sin. 2. That it is spiritual, and so reacheth the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. Number three, that one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. Four, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So, where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included and where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. 5. That what God forbids is at no time to be done, what he commands is always our duty. And yet, every particular duty is not to be done at all times. Number 6. That under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. 7. That what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound, according to our places, to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places. 8. That in what is commanded to others, we are bound, according to our places and callings, to be helpful to them, and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden them. Question 100. What special things are we to consider in the Ten Commandments? Answer. We are to consider in the Ten Commandments the preface, the substance of the commandments themselves, and several reasons annexed to some of them, the more to enforce them. Question 101. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? Answer. The preface to the Ten Commandments is contained in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, wherein God manifests his sovereignty as being Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God, having his being in and of himself, and giving being to all his words and works, and that he is a God in covenant, as with Israel of old, so with all his people, who, as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivereth us from our spiritual thraldom and that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone, and to keep all his commandments. Question 102. What is the sum of the four commandments which contain our duty to God? Answer. The sum of the four commandments containing our duty to God is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, and with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our mind.
Question 103. Which is the first commandment? Answer. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Question 104. What are the duties required in the first commandment? Answer. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended, and walking humbly with Him. Question 105. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, in denying or not having a god, idolatry, in having or worshipping more gods than one, or any, with or instead of the true god, the not having and avouching him for god and our god, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in his commandment, Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate in a moderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, and taking them off from him in whole or in part, vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in unlawful means, carnal delights and joys, corrupt blind and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and His commands, resisting and grieving of His Spirit, discontent and impatience at His dispensations, charging Him foolishly for the evils He inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Question 106. What are we specially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? Answer. These words before me or before my face in the first commandment teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh special notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God, that, so it may be, an argument to dissuade from it and to aggravate it as a most impudent provocation 
and also to persuade us to do as in his sight whatever we do in his service. Question 107. Which is the second commandment? Answer. The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Question 108. What are the duties required in the second commandment? Answer. The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and, according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. Question 109. What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, tolerating a false religion, the making of any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it, the making of any representations of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. Question 110. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment, the more to enforce it? Answer. The reasons annexed to the second commandment, the more to enforce it, contained in these words. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, are besides God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, his fervent zeal for his own worship, and his revengeful indignation against all for false worship as being a spiritual whoredom, accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him and threatening to punish them into diverse generations, and esteeming the observers of it such as love him and keep his commandments and promising mercy to them unto many generations. Question 111. 
Which is the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Question 112. What is required in the third commandment? Answer. The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by an holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. Question 113. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required, and the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if of things unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word or any part of it, to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God, to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or in any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends, being ashamed of it or ashamed to it by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or backsliding from it. Question 114. What reasons are annexed to the third commandment? Answer. The reasons annexed to the third commandment in these words, the Lord thy God, and for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain, are because he is the Lord and our God. Therefore his name is not to be profaned or any way abused by us, especially because he will be so far from acquitting and sparing the transgressors of this commandment as that he will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment, albeit many such escape the censures and punishments of men. Question 115. Which is the fourth commandment? Answer. The fourth commandment is, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Questions 116. What is required in the fourth commandment? Answer. 
The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. Question 117. How is the Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, to be sanctified? Answer. The Sabbath, or Lord's Day, is to be sanctified by an holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful, and making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts, and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation, to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business, that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Question 118. Why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors? Answer. The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge, and because they are prone oftentimes to hinder them by employments of their own. Question 119. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omissions of the duties required, all careless negligent and unprofitable performing of them and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. Questions, question 120. What are the reasons annexed to the fourth commandment the more to enforce it? Answer. The reasons annexed to the fourth commandment the more to enforce it are taken from the equity of it, God allowing us six days of seven for our own affairs, and reserving but one for himself. In these words, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. From God's challenging a special propriety in that day, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. From the example of God, who in six days made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day and from that blessing which God put upon that day, not only in sanctifying it to be a day for his service, but in ordaining it to be a means of blessing to us in our sanctifying it. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Question 121. Why is the word remember set in the beginning of the fourth commandment? Answer. The word remember is set in the beginning of the fourth commandment partly because of the great benefit of remembering it, we being thereby helped in our preparation to keep it, and in keeping it, the better to keep all the rest of the commandments, and to continue a thankful remembrance of the two great benefits of creation and redemption, which contain a short abridgment of religion, and partly because we are very ready to forget it, for that there is less light of nature for it, and yet it restraineth our natural liberty in things at other times lawful 
that it cometh but once in seven days, and many worldly businesses come between, and too often take off our minds from thinking of it, either to prepare for it or to sanctify it. And that Satan, with his instruments, much labor to blot out the glory and even the memory of it, to bring in all irreligion and impiety. Question 122. What is the sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man? Answer. The sum of the six commandments which contain our duty to man is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to do to others what we would have them do to us. Question 123. Which is the fifth commandment? Answer. The fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Question 124. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? Answer. By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Question 125. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Answer. Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties toward their inferiors, like natural parents, to express love and tenderness to them according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. Question 126. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? Answer. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. Question 127. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? Answer. The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Question 128. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? Answer. The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebelling against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Question 129. What is required of superiors towards their inferiors? Answer. It is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. 
Question 130. What are the sins of superiors? Answer. The sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, an inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure, commanding things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform, counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil, dissuading, discouraging, or discountenancing them in that which is good, correcting them unduly, careless exposing or leading them to wrong, temptation, and danger, provoking them to wrath, or in any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. Question 131. What are the duties of equals? Answer. The duties of equals are to regard the dignity and worth of each other, in giving honor to go one before another, and to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. Question 132. What are the sins of equals? Answer. The sins of equals are, besides the neglect of the duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, envying the gifts, grieving at the advancement or prosperity one of another, and usurping preeminence one over another. Question 133. What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment, the more to enforce it? Answer. The reason annexed to the fifth commandment in these words, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, is an express promise of long life and prosperity, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own, to all such as keep this commandment. Question 134. Which is the sixth commandment? Answer. The sixth commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. Question 135. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Answer. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any, by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Question 136. What are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, 
wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Question 137. Which is the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Question 138. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Answer. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Question 139. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. Question 140. Which is the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. Question 141. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements, and an endeavor, by all just and lawful means, to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Question 142. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, 
usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming, and all other ways whereby we do unjustly prejudice our own outward estate, and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. Question 143. Which is the ninth commandment? Answer. The ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Question 144. What are the duties required in the ninth commandment? Answer. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth, in matters of judgment and justice, and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. Question 145. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, 
endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things as are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others such things as procure an ill name. Question 146. Which is the tenth commandment? Answer. The tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Question 147. What are the duties required in the tenth commandment? Answer. The duties required in the tenth commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Question 148. What are the sins forbidden in the tenth commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the tenth commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Question 149. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Answer. No man is able either of himself or by any grace received in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Answer, all transgressions in the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Free newsletter and a complimentary copy of our large discount mail order Christian book catalog specializing in Reformation resources contact Stillwater's Revival Books. On the internet, we are at www.swrb.com. By email, we're at swrb at swrb.com. Our mailing address is 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada. T6L3T5 by phone 403-450-3730. After February of 1999, our area code will change. We can be reached by phone at 780-450-3730. And keep in mind that William Hetherington, commenting on the Solemn League and Covenant, the epitome of Second Reformation attainments, in his History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, 1856 edition, page 134, writes, No man who is able to understand its nature and to feel and appreciate its spirit and aim will deny it to be the wisest, the sublimest, and the most sacred document ever framed by uninspired men.